We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined on the telephone this evening by Donovan Smith in Taichung. And good evening, Gavin. And Michael Smith in Kaohsiung. Hey there. Tonight we'll be discussing more about the campaign to recall Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guo-yu, legislative proposals to lower the voting age to 18, a new domestically built civilian rocket with a hybrid engine, and a survey showing that some 45% of the island's population don't verify fake news before they post it on their social media accounts. But we'll begin with the latest coronavirus news from here in Taiwan, and the Central Epidemic Command Centre confirmed the island's first coronavirus death on Sunday. The patient was a 61-year-old man, and health officials say that he had hepatitis B and diabetes, had not travelled overseas recently, but he was the driver of a private taxi living in central Taiwan who had clients who were from or who had travelled to China, Hong Kong or Macau. Now, authorities here on Thursday confirmed that a Taiwanese businessman who recently returned from China's Zhejiang province was the source of that coronavirus infection. They say the man returned from China on January the 22nd and came into contact with the victim through his taxi service. Now that's led to transport operators in central Taiwan urging taxi drivers there to sterilise their vehicles and wear face masks while the Taichung city government has also been sending out hazmat suited teams to sterilise taxis. While government agencies nationally in charge of road transportation and regulations are now also cracking down on unlicensed taxi drivers and operators. Meanwhile the Central Epidemic Command Centre reported the island's 24th corona case on Wednesday, and that of a woman in her 60s who lives in northern Taiwan and has no record of travelling abroad for over two years. Now, Health Minister Chen Shih-jong says authorities are still looking into how the woman was infected. Now, the Cabinet on Thursday approved a draft bill aimed at mitigating the impact of the coronavirus outbreak, and if the bill is passed in the legislature, it will authorise the Cabinet to allocate a special budget of no more than 60 billion NT to cover funding and will remain in effect until the end of June of next year. Now, the bill includes measures to compensate medical personnel, those required to undergo quarantine and hard-hit local sectors, and also sets out harsher punishments for individuals who break quarantine restrictions or hoard supplies. Now, there have also been calls for a further delay to the start of the new school semester due to the continuing spread of the coronavirus as schools at the high school level and below will begin their next semester next Tuesday following the already extended winter vacation. Now, the Centres for Disease Control says initial screening will use the 37.5 degree standard but students testing over 37.5 degrees will be tested a second time at school using an ear thermometer and a fever will be defined as anything over 38 degrees while the Ministry of Education this week issued guidelines for the suspension of school classes in the event of confirmed coronavirus cases. So, Donovan, of course, the island's first fatality in, I believe the man was from Zhanghua, which led to, he drove a taxi and concerned that it could spread through taxis. Yes. Um, yeah, he picked up, uh, as you mentioned, he picked up a passenger from Zhejiang in China, uh, a returning Taiwanese businessman. Now, it appears that the guy, uh, did, he was coughing the whole way back, and they initially tested the guy to see if he had the Wuhan virus and tested negative. So I think they tested later for uh, antibodies. So it appears that the guy who was the carrier who infected the cab driver was a, was, had already recovered from the, from the disease. Now, of course, the cab driver infected uh, his mother and a nephew and, and his brother. 
Um, and there have been, uh, and they have been investigating 235 people that those people came in contact with. The um, uh, and somebody just got uh, one or two people just got arrested for spreading rumors saying that those people had gone to different locations around Zhanghua, causing panic, and they weren't actually true. So. But yeah, there's been a, a lot of uh, attention given this over this last week in the Zhanghua and uh, Taichung and in that Nanto over making sure that the cabbies and bus drivers have face masks. They've been uh, and encouraging them to frequently sterilize their their uh, vehicles. And as you mentioned, the hazmat suited uh, people from the Taichung city government have been sent out to uh, to uh, sterilize the cabs. And of course, this is also affecting buses, apparently. Yes, buses were also included in, in a distribution of face masks and sterilization. Right. And Michael, what about in Kaohsiung? Well, we had just uh, a couple of days ago information that a cruise ship that docked in the city on February 4th uh, did originally was thought to not have any uh, virus uh, sufferers, but in fact uh, turned out there was some after it docked at another, another location. So 31 taxi drivers in this city have been called in. They found them on surveillance footage, their license numbers, and they've been asked to come in and be checked and possibly going to quarantine. So yeah, we're seeing some of the same things here. Um, there's disinfectant campaigns on the MRT constantly and on buses as well. And the mayor took a bit of uh, grief uh, a week and a half ago or so when he uh, got onto a bus to inspect the cleaning and then picked with his hands, got down on his knees and picked up the bleach water to smell it to see how clean it was what they were using. So a little bit of a, a strange situation there. But yes, lots of disinfecting going on. Right, of course, the island's 24th coronavirus case, Donovan, was a woman in her 60s, and there was some concern over where she contracted the virus. But, of course, this led the US CDC to put Taiwan on a list of countries that people probably shouldn't be visiting. Yeah, um, the uh, and the foreign ministry here has specifically asked that the U.S. remove Taiwan from that list. And they specifically said that the, okay, the CDC included Taiwan as a travel destination, uh, but the, the local government here says that actually, according to CDC, this is the U.S. Uh, Centers for Disease Control, that according to the CDC's own standard, this does not, uh, does not actually meet the criteria to qualify as a community spread. It's only one person. Of course, Michael, the cabinet coming up with a $60 billion bailout plan and also harsher punishments for people who stupidly ignore their quarantine orders and hoard supplies. Yeah, so this, um, for us down here in the South, this very early on during the uh, the beginning of, of, of the awareness of this, uh, what are they calling it, COVID-19 uh, uh, virus, right? Very early on, a guy from China, a returning businessman, did come through Kaohsiung. Uh, he allegedly took fever suppressants to make it into the city through the, the, the checks and then wandered over to a, to a, a dance hall and then took the subway and went up. So uh, this was one of the first ones, and people down here were outraged that this person could do that, and he was fined a significant amount of money, but people are, are still actually uh, hoping that uh, he will serve jail time and that he'll actually be, be charged with criminal offenses. So, yeah, there's not a lot of patience from most of the public that I can see for people who are, are doing this. They consider these people to just be selfish, and, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> there's no uh, redeemable explanation for, for doing this and putting the public at risk. And, of course, he wasn't named Michael, but apparently now they've actually come 
out and they're actually naming people who Name do. and shame, exactly, yeah. I mean, it's, uh, in a Confucian society, perhaps that's one of the more, uh, uh, maybe shame is one of the bigger, big, big, bigger motivators than, than financial penalties, for all we know. So it could be a good move. And what about hoarders? Obviously, in Taipei, we saw a massive run on tissue paper a couple of weeks ago. We saw it as well. I mean, it wasn't quite so ridiculous. There wasn't, you know, people lined up across uh, around the corners or around blocks and stuff. But, yeah, there was that. And uh, um, there's been, uh, again, I, I, don't, I don't even want to repeat these, some of these rumors because I'm afraid people will believe them or think that they're truthful. But there have been plenty of rumors about how this thing can sterilize that or this mask can do this or da 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 and, uh, you know, this is just, uh, again, uh, part of the, the, the problem that we're having recently in Taiwan of uh, people not being able to dif- differentiate be- between fake news, right? Right. And Donovan, naming and shaming. And obviously the Tainan mayor has said that at least two people in the city there will have their photographs published if they violate their quarantine orders again along with their names. Yeah, I mean, that, that's problematic in, in terms of privacy. And I'm not, sh- I'm not actually sure that that uh, is legal. Uh, they put in uh, some fairly strict privacy laws a few years ago, so I'm a little bit un- unclear whether or not it contravenes that. And, uh, and those laws govern how the government can use personal information uh, in the public sphere. Uh, but I'm not a lawyer, so I, I really can't say. Obviously, if somebody does break a quarantine and people are aware of what that person looks like and their name, I think that would provide a lot more social pressure on that person to comply. Right, of course, so prison sentences now for some people that violate their quarantine rules and heftier fines, up to one million NT. Yeah, um, I, I, I mean, those, those, those are pretty significant fines. Uh, we've also had some people here break quarantine, uh, but unlike uh, the, the situation that Michael was describing down in Kaohsiung, the people who broke the quarantine here were not, it turned out, weren't actually infected. So I, I, I'm wondering if they're going to, or if there are any provisions in it uh, that change the fine. If somebody who's under quarantine breaks the quarantine uh, and they don't actually uh, aren't infected, but we have pr- other problems. Like for example, in Zhanghua, it was just announced that there's 113 Hong Kong and Macau students who are now quarantined over four schools, even though they may not be even risk of being carriers. I've heard of cases where, for example, uh, Philippine workers in factories are required to be tested every single day, even though they're probably among the least likely people to have come in contact with the disease. So some of these measures may make sense if somebody has come in, like in cases where the quarantine is put in place with somebody who's come in close contact with a known carrier. But we also have that wood factory uh, here in, in Taichung where it was a relative of the wife of an employee. None of the employees uh, tested positive, but all 58 uh, of these people are now under quarantine for 14 days. So some of these quarantines seem a little illogical. Right, Michael, better safe than sorry? Yeah, I mean, it just seems like uh, if we really look at the, all the information that we have right now, we do not have enough information. We don't know exactly, for example, how long it remains on certain surfaces or uh, what temperatures or uh, can you be asymptomatic. And then uh, there was a story the other day about someone being reinfected and how serious that so there's so many questions up in the air, and I, my personal feeling is I think the government in Taiwan so far has done a pretty decent job with trying to 
keep the panic levels uh, down, but at the same time uh, do a pretty good job with the quarantine stuff. I'm, I'm with Donovan on the, the questions of legality and other stuff, but, you know, this is sort of an emergency situation. So, yeah, I would have to say better safe than sorry. Right, of course, Michael, you have children and they'll be starting school again next Tuesday. How concerned are you? And do you think the government is taking action with its 37.5 degree temperature reading standard and also the guidelines for the suspension of school classes in the event of a confirmed outbreak? Well, I mean, as a parent who's had to uh, have children uh, with me now for a significantly longer period of time than we were supposed to for the uh, the Chinese New Year break and now, I really want them to go back to school. Let's just put it that way. But <laughs> on the safety side, I completely understand that uh, this, is, this is a big issue. Currently, uh, all the schools in Kaohsiung today uh, and all the way till Monday, they're going to be doing one more huge disinfectant. They're getting alcohol, masks, all of it. It's all getting ready. So there is a, a very significant group of, of parents who are asking uh, that, that school be postponed until their argument is, let's say we don't have any cases in Taiwan for two weeks, then we should start school. Or some sort of metric by which we can feel like they're, 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 we're getting a hold on this, and then, then we should start. And their argument is, is, is valid, but on the other hand, of course, there's so many of us that need to get back to work and back to jobs and stuff, and we, we really don't have the time to be caregivers, or some people don't have the funds to put their kids into another school, or like a, a cram school or a bushiban. Some of those have closed. Some of the winter camps or other activities have closed as well. So there's plenty of concern, and uh, you, you mentioned the requirements that the government has put in for the, uh, for the suspension. And I believe what that is, right, and correct me if I'm wrong, but if one a person in a class gets it, then the entire class is quarantined, including the teacher. If two people get it in a school, the entire school is quarantined. Now, what I'm not sure about is, does that include the, 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 the families of the kids? Does it include the, the teacher's family? Does it include... It, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, hopefully, we'll never have to find out, but I, I'm not exactly sure how it would work. So, yeah, trepidation is in the air, for sure. Uh, yeah, and here in Taichung, the uh, mayor just announced uh, that all kids coming back to school will get two face masks issued to them. Uh, and, the, and the city has, is, has a program going where every single day for the next four days you know, they're going they're conducting a sterilization you know, again the people with the hazmat suits uh, going to the schools to disinfect so they're, they're definitely making strong efforts Zhang Hua has been issuing uh, rubbing alcohol and face masks Nanto something similar along those lines bushy bonds have been included and also long uh, long care facilities as well um, but yeah, the, the, there's uh, I think I think trepidation, as as Michael put it, is a good word. But they're they're definitely making efforts to do something and to prepare. Right, talking of doing something and preparing, of course, Donovan, you were in Taichung for the 2002-2003 SARS outbreak. I mean, are you seeing anything different this time around? Um, I think the, this may seem, seem, seem odd, because Taichung at the time, and I was running back and forth between Kaohsiung and Taipei on business, but when I lived in Taichung, last time we didn't have any, in Taichung, we didn't have any major outbreaks. I think we had one person who came through but was quickly quarantined. Um, so Taichung was less panicky than the rest of the country last time around with SARS. But I feel like this time, because of the way the government has responded, I feel like people are not quite as concerned as they were during SARS. 
because SARS kind of ran out of control fairly quickly there, and you know they had to quarantine all those buildings and. I think there's more trust in the institutions now, but in, in a lot of ways it's similar in that you go into a building and they test your temperature, some pe- people are wearing masks, but I would say that the sense I'm getting here is that people are, are a little bit less afraid than they were then, and Tai Jung then was less afraid than a Taipei and Kaohsiung. Right, Michael, you were in Kaohsiung for SARS. Right. Uh, I uh, moved up to Taipei at the end of '03 and was traveling back and forth between Kaohsiung and uh, Taipei a lot during that time. And uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm wary of even mentioning this because I'm not a doctor and I don't want to spread rumors. But the thing that I'm hearing uh, from people down here is the same thing I was hearing with SARS back then. And Kaohsiung, um, some people are saying that because of the, the climate down here, the, the heat or something, that perhaps uh, we, uh, we, we, we may not uh, suffer as terribly as perhaps places that are a little bit colder. And uh, they're kind of putting their hopes in that. And it was the same thing during SARS. It, it sort of felt like uh, this was a Taipei problem for the most part. And, uh, you know, when we went up to Taipei and got off uh, whatever transport we were, we were putting on masks and stuff. And then we got back to Kaohsiung and people would take them off. So... If you, uh, like, I'm looking out my window right now, and there's plenty of people walking on the street, and I would say maybe only uh, two-thirds of people are wearing masks. And uh, th- there doesn't seem to be this, uh, a sense of, of panic. And, and again, it's uh, mainly about the numbers, as Donovan was pointing out. So far with this uh, infection, we haven't had a huge spike in Kaohsiung. I'm sure that if we had, you know, 10 cases and a reported in Kaohsiung in a single day, that there would be a lot more panic right now. But currently, that hasn't been the case. So... Uh, yeah, uh, same sort of uh, sensation that Donovan was just uh, expressing. Just not, not, uh, not a huge feeling of panic and a sort of a feeling that this is a northern Taiwan problem from down here, at least. Yeah, I, I would, uh, I, that sounds pretty similar to here. In this, but I'd say we might even be a, even a little more relaxed here. It seems like in uncertain environments, like, for example, on a bus, everybody's wearing a face mask. But just going to the supermarket... Maybe in my neighborhood, maybe half, maybe less are wearing face masks. So I don't feel like there, there's much panic going on. Right now, moving on from the coronavirus. Now, We Care Kaohsiung founder Aaron Yin this week announced that the second phase of a petition to recall Kaohsiung Mayor Han Guoyu has now garnered more than 450,000 signatures. And he's also saying that that number is expected to surpass 500,000 by the middle of March when the petition will be submitted to the Central Election Commission for review. And Michael, you spoke with Yin recently and he defended the reasons why the campaign was initiated and also said that those reasons are totally valid and in line with the country's recall laws. Right, so real quick on who Aaron Yin is. He's the former Cultural Affairs Bureau Director in the last administration uh, in Kaohsiung. He himself is not a member of the DVP. Uh, he's an independent, and one of the things that he uh, is credited with, or at least he was part of the team, is the uh, Pier 2 and that Pier Arts Center down at the, uh, at the waterfront in Kaohsiung, helping to revitalize that area. So he uh, obviously left office uh, quite a while ago, and then uh, now Hangul uh, won the election at that time, and uh, he he told me, first off, that uh, he doesn't think that Han is a bad person. He said, you know, the people who know him and talk to me about him tell me that he has a good sense of humor and, uh, you know, in person he's affable and uh, polite and all of that. But then he said, but he's a bad mayor. 
and he went over the, all the reasons of why. Um, one of the biggest ones is uh, abandonment of the city. So, you know, in Taiwan, carpetbagging uh, has a long and honorable tradition. You don't really need to be from Taichung or be from Taoyuan or somewhere to run for office for that uh, position. You just need to change your household registration a couple months before an election, right? So that's never been a huge issue, somebody popping up from one place and wanting to run for somewhere else. But the feeling that, that, that they really are upset about is that they feel that uh, Han used the election for Kaohsiung mayor merely as a stepping stone for higher office or to go to the presidency. And that to them feels like a betrayal, which uh, is unacceptable, and they feel he needs to be recalled for that reason. And then he listed a whole bunch of other reasons of just incompetence. And uh, uh, one, one interesting thing was his argument was, uh, I posed a question to him about time. I'm like, don't you think maybe it's possible you haven't given the mayor long enough to be able to put these plans into into fruition? Because, you know, even though he's been in office for a year and a half, he spent, you know, plenty of time running for president, and maybe he just needs a little bit more time to get these grand ideas. And Yin stopped me, and he's like, stop, 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 wait a second. If you were truly planning to build a Disneyland or a new airport or this, that, or the other, or many of the ideas, drill in the South China Sea, whatever idea that Han may have had, you would need to begin submitting proposals and getting budgets and talking to this person and allocating land, and there'd be just a million things you need to do. He's like, I used to serve in the government. I know how complicated this is. And I can tell you that they're not serious about any of these plans because they haven't even put any words down to paper about how they are, are planning to even begin the process of doing X, Y, and Z. So he uh, and his uh, group there are, are quite confident that uh, this could be the first... Uh, majorly high-profile elected official removed from office. And he also noted that we should look at the recall law. So the recall law, I believe, is, is more than 25 years old, right? But it was uh, amended at least twice that I'm aware of. And the amendments made it quite difficult for a person to be ejected from office. So I think Alex Tai up in Taipei, the KMT uh, legislator, and then uh, uh, Huang from the NPP, both of them, they, there was attempts to remove them from office. Both of those failed. So his argument is, if we do this and we pull it off with all the difficulties, first you need one signature uh, drive, then a second signature drive, then a yes or no vote, and then finally a new election. If we pull this off, it is uh, completely the will of the people of Kaohsiung, completely in line with the law. He was elected democratically, and now they are trying to remove him democratically. They may or may not succeed, but he's like, this is not uh, a personal vendetta. This is simply what needs to be done, because... The majority of people no longer support him. And he pointed to some very uh, interesting statistics. So Han won the election uh, for mayor by roughly, I don't know, 150,000 votes or so. But if you look at the number by which he lost to Tai during the presidential election, he got one of the lowest vote counts for a KMT official in Kaohsiung. And it was such a difference that Yin says just looking at these numbers from then to then shows that he's lost the support of Kaohsiung people. And that means it's time for him to... To be removed. Donovan. Yeah, there was two things that, that come to mind about this. Um, now, the first, I'd just like to, I, I, and Michael, if you, if you have something to add, just uh, jump in. Um, the first thing I find very interesting is they only, the, the number of signatures that We Care is collecting, plus um, the Citizen Mowing Group, combined, they're looking at, they're hoping to be well over 500,000 when they submit them uh, to the Central Election Commission. Now, the What's interesting is they only need 200 and some odd thousand to pass the margin. So they're going way past it. They're using right. the number of signatures as a statement. 
Now, what's also, I think, quite important about that is that the number of people, when, when they hold the yes or no recall vote, the number of people who would need to vote yes is 580,000. There's a possibility that they may actually submit as many signatures as they need votes. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll get the 580,000 votes, because with signatures, they, they can go out and get the signatures, whereas, of course, with a vote, you have to show up. But I do think that you know, if they reach that 580,000, that, that'll be quite a statement. Right. It's actually three groups. There's also the Taiwan State Building Party, um, of which I think in Taichung you now have your first uh, legislator, yes. right? So they are also involved in this, and they were up in Taipei over the weekend uh, outside of various uh, MRT stations looking for Kaohsiung-registered voters to sign up for the, the recall drive in Taipei. So, yes, he was very clear with me about the number of signatures. Number one, just as you said, he wants to make it uh, as a statement. He wants it to be not just some, something that looks sort of petty. He wants it to be a very clear uh, illustration. Secondly, he doesn't want to take any chances that perhaps some of these would be uh, invalidated. If you write uh, a simplified Chinese character on the petition, for example, uh, even if it's something like Chu for district or you know, one of these commonly used uh, less than uh, uh, traditional Chinese characters, that would uh, invalidate the ballot. So they want as many as possible. I asked him how many ballots last time around were invalidated, and it was somewhere around 3%. So he needed 287,000 originally, and going to 500 or 6,000, as you've noted, is a ridiculous overkill, but again, a, sig a signal and also safety first. Right, and we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and Deputy Legislative Speaker Tsai Chi Chung on Wednesday said he believes a proposal to lower the voting age to 18 will likely pass legislative review and a final vote. Now Tsai's comment came amid calls to revise the voting age from the New Power Party and the Taiwan People's Party. However, lawmakers from both of those parties have voiced concern about the high threshold of legislative votes needed to secure the constitutional amendment required to lower the voting age from the current 20 to 18 years. So, Donovan, lowering the voting age, about time, or maybe they should ooh and ah on the side of caution? Well, uh, I, I don't have a strong feeling on the opinion, but I, I think that in general, uh, Taiwanese young people are pretty, pretty well educated and uh, do have an interest in politics, even when they pretend they don't. Uh, so I, I feel like they, they, they can be trusted with their vote, and I do think that they would... They, you know, at least a good percentage of them would make uh, would be interested in making a positive contribution. Now, I think what's interesting about this is that all the parties now have basically said, who are in the legislature, have said they're on board for this. Now, we understand why, of course, the NPP, the TPP, and even to a lesser degree, the DPP would want this, because all of them do well with younger voters. But that the KMT is on board for this is very interesting. Now, this signals that I think they've been talking about how they need to get in younger members. Uh, Zhang Jitsun, or Johnny Chang, uh, who is one of the two candidates for KMT chair, he's uh, from here in Taichung, he said, uh, he noted the other day that only three, just over 3% of KMT party members are under 40 versus 34% of the electorate. 
they get basically no votes among young, young voters. There's a, another example was last December, there was a mock poll among 2,000-some-odd high school students, but the rest were college age, total of 11,000-some-odd. And the KMT, among all of these, many of whom are already voters, and most of whom would, would become voters under this new law, they put the KMT on the party list vote, which is a good way of comparing the party support, and they got two point something percent, which put them fifth behind the Green Party. Um, so the the KMT, in one sense here, I can see why they want to signal to younger people and try and you know get some interest and some trust and support among younger voters. But I think the sad reality is, is that they're not going to succeed with that. And worse, they're just going to create an, a, a larger pool of people to vote against them. Well, I mean, I, I personally uh, am very much in support of this proposal. In fact, I think that for industrialized countries uh, in general, the trend uh, is, is, is lowering. And uh, uh, there's some talk in, in certain European places of perhaps even going down to 16. Because, you know, when we have an election, this is deciding the future of uh, young people's lives much more than it's deciding the future of old people's lives, right? So this is sort of nonsensical to, to, to me. It just makes perfect sense that the people who are going to be living the policies that are going to be enacted should have some sort of a say in it. Now, of course, you know, the question is, are they, are they mature enough? Are they uh, aware enough? And I have to agree with uh, Donovan that uh, Taiwanese young people for the most part they have access to information on the internet they have access to uh, television opinions they have their parents they have their friends or whatever but in general I, th I do think that they would make a, a well uh, considered opinion now you know we, we were all young we all voted one way once when we were young we vote possibly differently as we get older but that's part of the, the whole cycle of learning to uh, be part of the community and be part of uh, elections and part of democracy so yeah I say the earlier the better I'm, I'm personally in favor of even going lower than 18. So 18 is, is a good start. Right. Now, Taiwan Innovative Space last week was forced to cancel the launch of Taiwan's first domestically built civilian rocket from a launch site in Taidong County at the last minute. But there's still hope that the Hapith-1 will be launched soon and travel for 10 minutes to an altitude of 250 kilometres, then fall back into the ocean somewhere between Orchid and Green Islands. And I spoke with Lauren Jung of the National Central University's Institute of Space Science about the rocket and Taiwan one day being able to launch its own satellite right here in Taiwan. Good evening, Lauren. Good evening, Gavin. So, the launch of Taiwan's first domestically built rocket, the Hapith-1, was, of course, aborted last week. But, of course, it's quite a big thing, isn't it? Because, of course, this is apparently the first domestically produced rocket by the Taiwan Innovative Space Company. That is correct. Um, so, Taiwan Innovative Space Company, or uh, T-Space for short, uh, is a private launch services provider that was established in 2016 by uh, several individuals with uh, prior experience with rocket propulsion. And where is it based? So the uh, company itself is based in uh, Miaoli, uh, which is the main site for its uh, R&D facilities as well as, um, uh, as well as a uh, rocket test firing site. And uh, they also have um, launch facilities um, down in Taitong. Is it civilian and military? No, uh, the uh, company itself is uh, purely civilian. The uh, military uh, rocket and missile programs are handled out of the National Chongsan Institute of Science and Technology, which is complete, uh, completely separate. Right. And, of course, this rocket supposedly had something called a hybrid engine. 
That is correct. So this is a type of uh, rocket propulsion method. So rocket propulsion works on the principle of basically um, ejecting your uh, propellant at a very high velocity out of a nozzle, and uh, we know action-reaction that produces thrust. Now, in order to eject your propellant at a very high velocity, you need to burn it. You need, you need combustion. And to do that, you have to mix your propellant with um, an oxidizer, essentially the uh, stuff that causes it to uh, combust. Now, there are three main types of rockets. In some cases, the, uh, the oxidizer and the propellant are both solid and mixed together. All you do is you light it up. So this is essentially your typical bottle rocket. Um, then there, ha- there is a, a variant where basically both the oxidizer and propellant are liquids. You have to mix them together using uh, a turbo pump, which, which can be highly complex. And uh, again, uh, since both are, are fluids, they can mix very easily and uh, in some cases uh, be ignited um, accidentally. The third type, basically, you have um, a, a solid propellant and a liquid oxidizer. And by controlling the flow of the uh, oxidizer through the propellant, you can uh, essentially throttle the uh, engine up and down. So this is a uh, hybrid rocket, and it's considered safer because um, because the two uh, the oxidizer and the propellant are in two different states. They don't mix as easily. So if for some reason there was some accident, for example, where um, the propellant, uh, where you, for example, you had an oxidizer spill. Uh, the uh, risk of an accidental explosion would be considerably less. But, of course, the launch was aborted because apparently the wind was unfavorable. Um, yes. Uh, the, uh, during that day, it was uh, raining and uh, the winds were quite strong. And one of the main issues uh, that you have to take into account um, when planning a launch is you uh, want to avoid situations where you have extremely strong wind shears, especially as the rocket uh, climbs up through the lower atmosphere, since this could, in some cases, cause the uh, rocket to fly off course. And, of course, it was quite a large rocket. Not obviously NASA size, but, you know, it, it was quite a large rocket for the first one. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the size of the rocket, um, it's what we typically call a uh, suborbital sounding rocket, which means um, it can fly to extremely high altitudes. In fact, um happens when... Uh, theoretically should be able to fly to 350 kilometers altitude. Just to give you an idea of where that is, the International Space Station is around 400 kilometers altitude. But it won't go fast enough to stay in orbit, so it essentially it'll go up and then uh, fall back down. Now, that's sufficient for, for example, space qualifying certain things or um, for carrying out certain upper atmospheric experiments. But uh, they won't actually be able to uh, inject a satellite into orbit until um, the uh, HAPIS-5, which is their... Uh, larger uh, orbital launch vehicle that they're currently working on. In that particular uh, model, they are saying that they should be able to uh, launch satellites into low-Earth orbits as high as 700 kilometers altitude. Of course, they did say it was going to come down somewhere between Orchid and Green Island, but can they actually predict that precisely, or is it slightly a bit dangerous? Um, Actually, that was one of the main rationales for their uh, choice of the site. So by launching in that direction, they actually have a fairly wide range where they can um, launch a uh, a rocket through and essentially fly through only international airspace. So that reduces the possibility of misunderstandings. For example, if they were to launch, if they were to launch in the uh, opposite direction.
So obviously Taidong County was the best place to do it because of the space over there. That's certainly one of the major aspects of it. Actually, uh, we have had launch sites um, in the Taidong, Pingdong area for an extended period of time. So the uh, military's uh, main missile uh, test range is at Jiopeng, which is right on the border between uh, Pingdong and Taidong, so the same general area. And again, um, a lot of the same considerations uh, came into play, basically being able to fly through international airspace over water and uh, also the area being uh, somewhat remote also uh, was of interest for the military when they uh, built their launch site there. Right, of course. How do you see the future of Taiwan one day being able to launch its own satellites? And do you think it could do it from Taiwan, or would it still have to send them overseas to launch them? Well, there certainly is a lot of potential um, in terms of commercial spaceflight in Taiwan. So uh, there's growing interest now in um, mega constellations for communications or uh, satellite imaging. For example, uh, Starlink from uh, SpaceX is expected to have over 30,000 satellites. So 30,000 essentially pieces of uh, highly sensitive electronics with uh, communications gear and uh, various other sensors. This is something that industry in Taiwan, the electronics and the telecommunications industry, has very strong interest in, especially when you start talking about mass production, then you start going straight up the alley of uh, consumer electronics uh, manufacturing and, uh, um, and supply companies. Uh, of course, all this is built on the ability of being able to actually launch a satellite that you've built into orbit. So um, being able to have a uh, domestic company that would be able to provide this launch service essentially uh, would... Uh, really, really helped to uh, anchor this uh, new space industry in Taiwan. Could they launch these things here, or do you think they'd still have to go to Florida or somewhere else? Well, um, Florida is actually uh, at roughly a similar latitude, slightly to the north of us. So actually, if we're trying to launch into a certain class of orbits, what we call low-inclination orbits, um, launching out of Taiwan would be uh, quite uh, advantageous, since we're closer to the equator. So... um, a rocket launch from Taiwan would actually have an initial velocity towards the east caused by the rotation of the Earth. So this is basically velocity that the rocket doesn't have to provide. What about a time frame for when Taiwan could be launching its own satellites? Two years, five years, a decade? Well, um, in terms of launching satellites, well, we already do have multiple satellites from our national space program um, in orbit. Of course, these were um, all uh, launched using American launch providers. We are moving towards an era of smaller satellites now built by universities. In fact, uh, our university, uh, National Central University, is involved in uh, developing two, which we expect to be launched uh, this year, Um, one through an Indian launch provider and the uh, second one through, uh, well, uh, we're still working on that. But I I think it is uh, quite realistic to expect being able to launch from a Taiwan launch provider, I would say, sometime in the next five years. That was me in conversation with Lauren Chung of the National Central University's Institute of Space Science. And before we go this week, a survey released by the National Development Council has found that large numbers of people here in Taiwan don't bother to verify suspicious or fake news reports. Now, according to the council, the study showed that some 45% of people don't double-check if any suspect or faked information is accurate or not. Now, that figure is up from 35% compared to a similar survey which was conducted in 2018. Now, the latest survey also found that 27% of respondents admitted to reposting dubious reports on their social media pages. Now, of course, this report came out after the government took huge steps to crack down and inform people of fake news, Donovan, in the lead-up to the election. But apparently those warnings have fallen on 45% of the population's deaf ears. Well, actually, you know what I find interesting about that, about those numbers, is that, as you noted, there was a, a big uptick 
in the number of people who said that they weren't uh, looking into or, or verifying what could be suspicious news. That actually suggests to me that it's quite possible that what's actually happened is is that more people are becoming aware that they could potentially be fake news. In other words, before, they just simply weren't aware. So I, I, I'm really kind of dubious about how much those numbers uh, actually reflect the, the, the truth of, uh, because I think a lot of, in a lot of cases before, people weren't even aware of the issue of fake news. So it could be good news and that people are becoming more aware of the issue, or it could be bad news, they were aware of it before, and now they're just simply kind of like, okay, I'm going to go without a condom here in my news world. Um, so, so, but I, it smells to me like this is this indicates actually greater awareness of the problem. The other thing that, that really strikes me about this is that quite clearly there, there's a solution that I think should be implemented more, and that is that they should all be listening to ICRT news. Um, uh, as far as awareness goes, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, in. I agree with Donovan there, and uh, something to think about. Okay, so um, we all, most of us, grew up with, uh, let's say. In the States, The Onion, uh, as a fake newspaper, I'm sure there are uh, many of these same things in, in the U.K. and Europe and Australia and across the, the, the Western world. And I, I would dare say that probably all of us have been burned on occasion by uh, reading a story that we thought was real and later discovering that we had been hoaxed, right? So that's been going on for a good 30 years in the Western world. But if you think back uh, through Taiwanese history, uh, putting out some fake story back during the authoritarian era of Taiwan's uh, uh, history would not have gone over well. So there really possibly isn't this uh, same sense of satire in uh, in news or, or you know t- directed so of course we, we do have satire and people make fun of politicians all the time but just not quite in the same sort of fake news way and I think that helps uh, or, or, or leads to a situation where people are, are just not used to the idea that something that looks like a news report is in a website that it could be false so we, we, we have a long way to go in Taiwan before alarm bells go off in people's minds. And this, 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 this goes through everything. I mean, my, my kid has a textbook for, that was printed, and it made audacious claims about a woman who had been dethawed after 70,000 years, and then she gave birth to a baby. I'm like, no, that didn't happen. And it's in the book. It really is. I wrote the, the publishing company. I was angry. I told them to apologize. They wrote an apology note to my daughter, and they, they said they were going to pull. So we go, you know, just we just don't have this same sort tradition of, of, oh, I smell a rat, you know? So we really need to, to begin working on this. Uh, not only are, perhaps are people becoming more aware of it, but also, Donovan, it's possible that there are um, more of these sites. Uh, last year I did a little uh, research into uh, uh, content farms and uh, fake news sites that, are, that people post on, on Facebook or Line or other places, and uh, there's just a lot more of them than there were a couple years back, and they look relatively official. They've got, you know, a web page with a header, and it, it just doesn't look like it would be wrong. There's no there's no outward sign that it would be false. So, yeah, um, you're, you're kind of uh, – this population currently, I believe, is just sort of uh, ripe for being hoaxed, and perhaps it's going to take a few more embarrassments where people go, oh, yeah, that, that was dumb. I probably shouldn't have sent that. And we might begin moving towards a, a, a greater awareness of it. But, yes, uh, it's, it's, right now it's pretty spooky, the kind of things you get in line groups or over Facebook that people just don't question like, at all. Anyway, that's all. We'll leave it here on Taiwan this week. And I've been joined on the telephone this evening by Donovan Smith in Taijong. 
and have a great weekend. And Michael Smith in Kaohsiung. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. There won't be a show next week, Friday the 28th, as it's 2 to 8 Memorial Day here, and we'll all have the day off and won't be at work. But don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to one of our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.